been really enjoying how we as a church have been journeying and unpacking these opening chapters of Genesis. And I've been really praying that we are able to submit to the truth that is in these pages, the truth about God and the truth about us. And today we continue our sermon series, In the Beginning, God. We've arrived at the flood narrative, the famous story of Noah's Ark. But before we unpack that, let's summarize where we've been. The story, in a beautifully poetic and theological fashion, declares that God exists from all eternity, and he takes chaos, and he takes disorder, and he creates this good world. God, in an act of supreme love, creates out of nothingness. Central to his creation is humanity, whom he makes in his own image. Why? I like the way one catechism puts it. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself. Okay, God in and of himself doesn't need anything. He's perfect. But in a plan of sheer goodness, he freely created man to share, to have him share in his own blessed life. So, God chooses humanity to participate in his divine rule. Humans are his representatives in the created order. And yet, as the story unfolds, an enemy of God is introduced that takes the form of a serpent in the Genesis account. And humans are enticed by this serpent, and they decide to rebel against God. They choose to define good and evil on their own. Well, through this, sin and death enter the good creation, and importantly, the relationship between God and man is now fractured. We, we see in the early chapters of Genesis how there's a repeated theme, a repeated theme of rebellion. We saw it in the garden, and we saw it with Cain and Abel, and now, in our passage this morning, we see it once again, and how rebellion now is reintroducing chaos and disorder into God's creation. Yet, God still looks to reconcile and restore. So today, we're unpacking the flood narrative. And excuse the pun, but sometimes we water it down. We make it into some cute children's story about animals going in two by two, a big boat, and people looking up at a rainbow. And all of those are elements in the story. But we've tended to divorce the narrative from the solemnity, from the seriousness of the judgment that is being expressed. Whenever I read the flood narrative, a picture comes into my mind. Um, when I was younger, my parents had this family Bible, and they would read us bits of scripture from it. And the picture that I think of is sketched there in my mind vividly, and that's because it is a picture of the frightening reality of the flood, people drowning in the misery of their own making, an image similar to the famous painting, The Deluge. This painting captures some of the horror that this narrative is communicating. Look at the misery, look at the chaos, look at the destruction. God wipes out, drowns every single part of creation every bit of humanity other than one family. As we meditate on this part of Scripture this morning, let me say this. 
do not be quick to dismiss the discomfort. If you dismiss that, you'll dismiss the reality. Right. So our passage today begins with a genealogy. For us modern readers, genealogies might seem a bit boring and not at all important, but to the narrative, they add important detail and they're strategically placed. And so if you've got your Bible, I'm reading from Genesis 5. It'll be up there as well. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he made them, named them mankind when they were created. And so we're reminded that even though brokenness has crept in and sin is increasing, that male and female were made in the image of God, that they were blessed in this. That's all of us, all of humanity are created in this image. John Walton, the Genesis scholar, has stressed how these genealogies track the dualistic reality of blessing and curse. We see blessing in generation after generation as people made in the image of God are being fruitful and they're multiplying. And yet we have that phrase that grounds the other reality. And then he died. Let me make another quick comment about the genealogies. Distinctions being made between two lines, one from Cain and one from Seth. We've heard the tragic story as we've been going through these, the series about how Cain killed his younger brother, Abel, how he let sin rule over him. The, that passage ended with a genealogy. It zoomed into the seventh descendant from Adam, a man named Lamech. And we remember that Lamech was a man who boasted about his wickedness and his violence. Now, in the genealogy of Seth, once again, the focus is on the seventh from Adam, a man named Enoch. We read, Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. What's being communicated here by these two genealogies, symbolically that is, that there's a line, though made in the image of God, is embracing the brokenness. That's Cain's line. And then there's a line that, though broken, is trying to live out the image of God. That's Seth's line. Well, why is any of that important? As we continue our passage today, we read in chapter 6 that humans began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of human were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. That, that's quite an obscure way to begin a chapter, and it's captured the imagination of many interpreters. The offspring are Nephilim, which has the sense of fallen ones. Well, what's going on here? Because of the context of the genealogies, I would interpret this as the sons of God is the line of Seth, rebelling against the image of God. They see the daughters of humans, the line of Cain, and they mingle and they marry. All of humanity now is embracing the brokenness, the corruption, the violence. All are rebelling Evil now multiplies across creation and violence spreads. And this is what sets up 
the beginning of the flood account. Turn to Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And with the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. We get a profound glimpse into God's heart. We hear strong descriptions of God's emotions, his heart's troubled. So God sends floodwaters to wash away humanity's wickedness. What's being described here is the decreation of the world. The earth goes back into the chaotic waters that it came out from in Genesis 1. That's what sin has done. It's invited chaos and disorder back into good creation. The flood is a reversal of creation, and God takes no pleasure in this. His heart is broken as he sees what has become of humanity, who are made in his very image. The heart's evil all the time. All their ways have become corrupted, and through them the good world that God made is being corrupted. They are choosing to not share in God's blessed life. Well, God's judgment is clear. He will not tolerate rebellion. He will not tolerate sin. This is hopeless, right? Well, Lamech, a different one, has a child, a son, and he has great hope for this son. He names him Noah. Noah in Hebrew means rest, and that's what he hopes, that Noah will be able to provide rest, both to humanity and to creation who are restless in sin. We've heard about Noah's character, right, that he was blameless among his generation, that he walked faithfully with God. Well, Noah finds favor in God's eyes. God warns Noah of the destruction to come. A flood's coming that will destroy creation. Go, build an ark. Go into that ark, you and your whole family, and take with you a remnant of creation, because I have found you righteous in this generation." And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. He's obedient to God in this and will be obedient to whatever God commands. And then the disturbing description of God's judgment comes. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People, animals, the creatures that move along the ground, and birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. This is grim, and yet our narrative ends with hope. In chapter 8, we read that God says to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. And then we see Noah, he builds an altar to the Lord, and he sacrifices it on it. And God smells this pleasing aroma and says, in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is wicked from childhood. Yeah, the flood is an act of judgment, but 
It's through this very judgment that restoration comes. God preserves a remnant of humanity and creation from the chaos and destruction. In the beginning, God creates. What this narrative is primarily communicating is that God is faithful and committed to that creation. So we've seen creation, we've seen decreation, and now we will see recreation. As we continue our series, we will see how Noah is commissioned as a new Adam. Humans once again instructed to be fruitful and to multiply. Well, does Noah offer rest from sinfulness? Is he the one who restores? Is he the one who reconciles broken humanity to God? Is he the one who frees creation from its bondage? Well, no. Though obedient to God's command, and indeed a righteous figure, he too will fall. Just as in Eden, humans will fail to spread God's goodness and to come under his dominion. We too will see Noah in a garden, naked and ashamed. The cycle of sin will and does continue, and God names that. He says, there is something broken in us. Our heart is evil. That's our condition. But that does not stop God from being faithful and committed. And so we see one family rescued, and yet sin and rebellion remain. Humanity continues to be fruitful and multiply, all made in the image of God, and so we see blessing on one hand, and yet curse on the other, because the human heart is still evil, and death still remains. As we explore Genesis 1 to 11, we will see the devastating effects of sin, but I hope that we will also see the seeds of hope, namely the figure of hope, the figure who will be a serpent crusher, the figure who will provide rest to the cursed creation, the figure who will restore broken humanity. The story of Noah points ahead to a greater rescue, a greater figure of righteousness, Jesus, the only righteous one. Jesus takes on the chaos and destruction so that we may not need to. The poem, Grace Greater Than Our Sin, has this verse, Sin and despair like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. The early Christians understood the work of Jesus on the cross as a fulfillment of the flood narrative. Luke records Jesus articulating that he has yet to be baptized. And that's odd, right? Because he's gone through a baptism. But in Luke 12, Jesus says that I have the baptism to undergo and what constraint I am in until it's completed. Well, Jesus' death on the cross is him drowning in the chaotic waters of the flood. Yet an important distinction needs to be made. We see in the Genesis account the wicked are washed away, drowned in the destruction they have caused, and the righteous one and his family well, they're spared. But with Jesus, well, the wicked are spared. The one who is righteous drowns in the chaotic waters of violence and death. Noah survived the flood. Jesus does not. The ark was the shelter for Noah, yet Jesus now raised from the dead becomes a shelter, a safer refuge for not just one family, 
but for all of humanity and all of creation. I once heard it said, God creates out of nothing. Wonderful, you say. Yes, to be sure, but what is more wonderful still? He makes saints out of sinners. Peter phrases it this way. This is 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also not by the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at God's hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Jesus, now raised from the dead, becomes a shelter, a safer refuge, not just for one family, but for all of humanity, all of creation. Paul declares, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This means a new heart. This means rest. This means participation in the mission of Jesus. And most importantly, this means we get to live out for what we were created for, sharing in God's blessed life. Before I move on, I just want to offer a word of hope this morning. If you're sitting here feeling as if you're drowning in the waters of chaos, drowning in the waters of destruction, drowning in the waters of sin, you don't have to drown. I don't want to hide away from the reality of judgment, but I do want to stress the reality of hope. If you're not participating in God's life, yeah, the waters will wipe you away. But there is hope. Let me say this. Jesus is reaching out his hand and he is offering to pull you out. You don't have to remain there. God invites you into his blessed life. God is committed and faithful to his creation, to humanity, to you. Repent and believe this good news. All right, our passage this morning is a deep one and one that must be wrestled with but it can only be read in the light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In light of that, can I offer us some spiritual insights we can glean from this mighty passage? Walter Brueggemann names three tasks of the prophetic church, three tasks for those who are in Christ. One, to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion. Two, to grieve loss in a society that practices denial, and three, to express hope in a society that lives in despair. We need to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion. Yeah, that's central to our passage this morning. It is often best accomplished through not compromising. Remember the two lines we saw, Cain and Seth's? There was a compromise of righteousness, of truth, and how easy it is at a corporate or a personal level to compromise our identity in Christ. There are many pulls and attractions in our world, things that if we pursue, we will mar the image of God. 
And these things in our world, in our society, in our culture, we must reject. We must stand against. And as we reject these things, we tell society that these central dogmas, these central tenets are but an illusion. They are the waters of chaos and destruction in disguise. We need to grieve in a society that practices denial. Yeah, that's central to our passage this morning. Jesus describes the society in the time of Noah. He says in Matthew 24, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. They were functioning in denial. People have seen the devastation and have embraced it. They operate in the brokenness. And and that should grieve us. And that grief should lead to something. As kingdom people, we must be building the kingdom. And that means thinking about our culture and being a transformative change. And we do this despite the consequences. Many have commented on this and how true it is. Noah must have been a laughingstock, a fool to the eyes of everyone around as he built this giant boat in the middle of a desert. Yet, whenever we do the will of God in a broken and devastated world, we will look like fools. Noah would have seemed an absolute fool, yet he was acting in submission to God. Now, a lesson for us today? Yeah, be fools for Christ. The world may deride you and ridicule you. They may even become hostile to you. However, those who are in Christ are called to live in a way that the world calls upside down. Yeah, we grieve, but our hope is that society may arise from its denial. Expressing hope in a society that lives in despair. Yeah, that's also central to our passage this morning. I think the image that I saw as a child is most appropriate, because in graphic detail, it expressed the brokenness of our world, our society. We know that the ultimate consequence of sin is eternal separation from the life of God. Remember that catechism I quoted, God infinitely perfect and blessed in himself in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own divine life? Well, we know God wants humanity to share in his life, The same God who let the floodwaters engulf the earth says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? The Lord's heart and desire has always been the same, that his image bearers seek the source of life and live, that they flourish and thrive, that they pursue goodness, beauty, and truth. Yet, how will people know unless we go and tell them, we cannot sit by and watch our fellow image bearers head in the path of destruction? We must be people of evangelism. We must be people of mission. God did not leave Noah in the ark, but rather he sent him out for the blessing of creation. Charles Spurgeon got this. If sinners be damned, 
At least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unprayed for, and let no one go unwarned. Point them to Jesus. Point them to the one who can crush the serpent. Point them to the one who can offer rest. Point them to the one who can offer restoration. We must express hope to our society that is drowning in the waters of chaos and destruction. The only hope is Jesus. Now, this is a mandate for those who are in Christ. One, tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion. Two, grieve in a society that practices denial. And three, express hope in a society that lives in despair. I want to end now in prayer asking God to equip us as a church to be able to do this. I want to pray that the Spirit gives us strength to be able to carry out this mission. So let us pray. Almighty God, you created all things, and you did not, you did not do so out of necessity, but in a plan of sheer goodness for your own pleasure. You freely created humans in your image because you wanted them to share in your divine life. You want us to share in your blessed life. When we choose to forsake you, you do not forsake us. You are faithful and committed to your creation. You sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, to God-forsakenness. You sent him to drown in the chaotic waters, and on the cross he died. And in doing so, he defeated sin. And in rising from the dead, he defeated death. And we know that whoever comes to him is transformed and given life. Therefore, we come and worship you and you alone. We know your heart's desire is not for one to be lost, not for one to remain in destruction. Well, help us to have your heart's desire. Kindle within us a fire. Fill us with your spirit so that we may be able to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion, grieve in a society that practices denial, and give hope in a society that lives in despair. And we pray, most importantly, that we may love like you love. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May we join in bringing the kingdom. We pray this to your glory. Amen.